I'm not even going to have to ask you to open up your Bibles because um, we're only going to be covering three words this morning. Here they are. You ready? They crucified him. That's it. Let's bow our heads and ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Okay. We do thank you and praise you, Lord God, for this beautiful fall day you have given to us. We thank you for the beauty of creation. We thank you, Lord, for the transformation work that took place at Calvary, that you took the place of death, the place where the penalty for sin knew absolutely nothing of love or grace or mercy or forgiveness, and you caused it to be the very best place now that that we can go because it is at the foot of the old rugged cross that we are indeed washed clean by the blood of the Lamb and where we can find true forgiveness and have eternal salvation and the peace of God that passes all understanding and the joy of having sure hope in our future with you and the warmth of knowing that we are unconditionally loved by the God of creation, the Redeemer of our souls. And Father, now as we come to this very solemn moment, this serious lesson, we ask that your spirit would quicken our hearts in such a special way this morning so that that your son alone is magnified, that he is lifted up. He is literally lifted up in our lesson today, but we want to lift him up with honor and glory and and power and majesty and, and everything that he and he alone so very, very much deserves. And we pray, Father, that the words of, of my mouth and the meditation, meditations of all of our hearts corporately together would genuinely be pleasing and, and good and acceptable in your sight. Because we ask, knowing that these things in our, are in accordance with your will, and we want to magnify your Son. And that is what we pray for this morning. Amen. The most solemn day in Israel, you know, was that great day of atonement, the only day of the entire year in which the high priest of Israel would enter into the most holy place of the tabernacle, later the temple. That most holy place was called, what? The Holy of Holies. And before he approached that into that mysterious innermost sanctuary, the law required that he should remove his very beautiful, costly, outer priestly garments and clothe himself instead from head to toe in a plain, white, seamless linen vesture. And then he was to take a vessel with the sacrificial blood of an innocent animal into his hand, draw back the thick veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and reverently, humbly approach the the throne of grace in order to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. What people? The people of Israel. And he stayed in there only long enough to perform his priestly office, and then he came out. You know, if the Lord accepted the sacrifice... He was permitted to come out to pronounce in God's name, in the name of Jehovah God, grace and forgiveness to every penitent soul of Israel for that year's sins. 
Now, as we come to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see how this symbolical and highly significant yearly Old Testament drama was realized in its uh, fullness in the far better sacrifice, the once for all sacrifice of Christ himself. The sinless Lord Jesus, of whom the entire Old Testament priesthood was uh, just a typical shadow, concealed himself at the time of his crucifixion. He was concealing himself behind the thick veil of an increasing humiliation and agony, bearing, carrying in the clay vessel of his own body, not the the innocent blood of a sacrificial animal, but his own sinless blood, so that he could enter into that innermost sanctuary and mediate uh, for his for not only Israel but for all the people of the world with God. He was going to make atonement for the sins not just of the congregation of Israel but for the sins of the high, entire world. And it was going to be a once for all day of atonement, wasn't it? Didn't have to be performed year after year after year. He would accomplish everything that was figuratively pictured in the whole tabernacle service and ritual and the entire priesthood. And that is why Hebrews chapter 9 tells us, after making the great comparison, you know, drawing the beautiful contrast between the Old Testament sacrificial system and Christ's fulfillment of it, the author of Hebrews tells us that Christ's sacrifice was what? A better far better sacrifice that procured our salvation. Well, when we ended our lesson last week, the crucifixion procession of the Lord Jesus had just arrived at that once awful hill called what? Golgotha. What did it mean? The place of a skull. Golgotha or Calvary. What a horrible name, no matter if you say it in Latin, Hebrew, or Aramaic, or Greek. It means a place of a skull. It's a terrible name. And if General um, Charles Gordon's assessment of where that hill actually was is correct, I assume you read your notes about that, if he's right, that hill even looks like a skull. We talked about that last time. I've been there. I've seen it. It does look like a skull. Um, a skull, you know, is a very appropriate symbol for death, isn't it? Can you think of a better symbol for death than a skull? A skull was once somebody's head. It one time had beautiful hair on it, had eyes in the sockets that could crinkle with laughter or or weep with grief. It had um, eyebrows that could communicate surprise or anger or fear or joy, lips that moved and formed words that expressed the thoughts of that marvelous God-designed brain that was once in that skull. But an empty skull is void of all brain activity, isn't it? Has no mode of expression, either facially or verbally. There is nothing at all about a skull that pictures life. It indeed is a symbol of death. And on that accursed spot, Golgotha, the place of a skull, love and mercy and justice and forgiveness had never ruled 
only naked justice sat enthroned at Golgotha. Every guilty person brought to Skull Hill died there. There was no mercy there by the Romans, no grace, no love, no justice, I mean, no uh, forgiveness. Only justice ruled there. And every person brought there died there. And how did they die? They died in the most horrendous way man has ever invented. Awful. We're going to be talking about it. It was on this place so full of the horrors of crucifixion, crucifixions past, present, and future, that they took the Lord of life himself, the Lord of life, to crucify him with transgressors, even though he was perfectly innocent. So on that particular day, Golgotha was not only void of mercy, grace, forgiveness, and love, it was also void of justice. Because they crucified a perfectly innocent man. The God-man. Have you ever thought about how much this place, Skull Hill, once so full of dreadfulness, that screamed of sin and death and cruelty and death and merciless death, how was it transformed into What now we could say is that hill from whence cometh our help. Don't we have tons of of hymns in, in the hymnals that are about Calvary? And don't some of you even have probably today necklaces with crosses on them? Isn't it interesting to think that the place of a skull is now a place that fills our hearts with joy and love? Isn't it interesting that a place of a skull is now the common meeting place uh, where all of the redeemed of the Lord, even though we're separated, you know, in this generation from our brothers and sisters in Christ in other countries, we're separated from them by land and sea, and we're separated from brothers and sisters in Christ by time. You know, some of them have lived 100 years ago, some 2,000 years ago. We're separated from them, and yet it's the common meeting place For all of us, you know, at the foot of the cross, at the foot of Skull Hill. Isn't it amazing that this once awful place, from it, from that hill, now salvation and springs of peace and joy and love burst forth? Isn't that an amazing transformation? But before that transformation could take place, before it was possible, the worst tragedy, the worst catastrophe that this world has ever seen had to take place. The Lord of glory had to die there. The only green and completely fruitful man that this earth has ever known was cut down by his fellow man. And that is a terrible testimony against this world, isn't it? Who killed him? Romans and Jews. Romans and Gent- I mean, uh, Gentiles and Jews. The entire world killed him. What a testimony against the world that it covered its creator and its redeemer with wounds and stripes and blood so that he was scarcely distinguishable as a man. Isn't it a terrible... And I-, I had ladies telling me yesterday, they said, you know, if he came back today, what would the world do to him? They would do it all over again. 
they would kill him again. And now, in our extended study of Christ's life, I mean, it's taken us ten years to get here. Ten years to get here. But we're here. The day he's crucified. The hour of his baptism with blood has arrived in full. After arriving at the foot of Skull Hill, four pagan soldiers took the Holy One of Israel and offered him, as we saw last week, a stupefying potion that consisted of a cheap wine vinegar and myrrh. It was actually a drug narcotic, which wasn't, you know, supplied by the Romans. They had no mercy. It was supplied by wealthy Jewish women to help dull the senses and lessen the pain of the, of the crucifixion victims. And they offered it to the Lord. And what did he do? He refused it. He declined the stupefying drink. Why? Well, because he would submit to the will of his father with full consciousness. He didn't want the graciousness of his words that he would speak from that cross. He didn't want his self-control on the cross and his dignity on the cross and his kingliness, his royalty, everything that we're impressed about when we look at him while he's suffering on the cross, he did not want any of that to be attributed to the effect of a narcotic. And would people have done that? They would have. They would have said, oh, he was so gracious, and he said this and he said that because he was, you know, in la-la land. But he didn't want anybody, he didn't want the testimony that he bore to be diminished in any way or by anything. So he, they offered it to him repeatedly, the Greek verb tense tells us, and he declined it repeatedly. And only Mark gives us the time of the Lord's crucifixion. What time was it? The third hour. It was nine o'clock in the morning. What time did he die? What time did he give up his spirit? Three in the afternoon. How many hours was he on the cross? Six hours. Well, the executioners then took the Lamb of God after he refused the drink, and they began their horrible duty by removing with their rude and rough hands every single piece of clothing from his battered body. He whose garment was once the light of the heavens and the stars of the universe formed the fringe of his robe, now stood exposed and naked before all, with only the crimson of his blood to cover him. He is the great high priest. Now think of the type in the Old Testament. He is the great high priest, now stripped of his clothing, preparing to enter into the most holy place, to make atonement for the sins, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. But he did not need, unlike the high priest of Israel, he did not need to keep upon him the seamless white linen vesture, as those human high priests did. And you know why? Because he was already clothed in the righteousness of God. Before man... He may have looked naked, but before God, he was clothed with his righteousness. Nor did he need to carry a vessel of blood from a sacrificial animal with him in a vessel because, the you know, 
the blood, he didn't need the blood of an animal because it was going to be the blood of his own sinless body that he would carry into that most holy place in his own clay vessel, his human body. And that blood was already flowing. It was already spilling out, wasn't it? You see, this time, unlike Isaac, there was not going to be a ram substitute. Do you remember when Isaac, who was about 30 years old, he was not a little boy, he was a full-grown man, and he went up to that mountain with his father Abraham, and he looked around, he said, here's the wood, here's the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And how did Abraham answer him? He said exactly like this, God will provide himself a lamb for the offering. And that is exactly what was happening right now. God was providing himself the offering for the sacrifice. He himself was the lamb sin substitute. And by the way, isn't it interesting to think about this? You know, Adam, the first Adam, after having sinned, had his nakedness, of which he was suddenly aware, hadn't been before he sinned, was he? But once he sinned, he was very ashamed and aware of his nakedness. Well, he had his nakedness clothed by who? But by God. God clothed Adam and Eve. How did he do that? He shed the blood of an animal, probably a lamb, in order to cover them with the skins of that animal. Whereas, now think of this, that was the first Adam. He had to have his nakedness covered by God. The second Adam, the sinless lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was unclothed by wicked men. See, the Lord himself provided covering for sinful man while sinful man stripped the Lord. And do you know what? Sinful man is still trying to strip the Lord. They are. I mean, you can go into even many churches, sadly, and they're trying to strip the Lord of who he is. They'll say, oh, he wasn't virgin born. He isn't really God. He was just a great prophet, a great teacher. Um, he didn't bodily resurrect. They're just, you know, I just heard on the news again, it's not the first time, but they're always either trying to make him to be a homosexual or to make him have had an affair with Mary Magdalene. I think last week they said, oh, now they have proof that he was married. Not that that's a sin, you know. But the world is still trying to strip the Lord. But no matter how much they try to remove from him, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because he is still God. He is still clothed in the righteousness of God. Amen. No matter how naked they try to make him look, don't worry about it. He's still on his throne. He's still God. He's still covered in the righteousness of God. When we read what the gospel accounts say about the Lord's uh, actual moments of crucifixion, we find something rather amazing. You know what we find? We find that they are almost silent on it. Just like the scourging 
Remember when we discussed the scourging? It just said, and he was scourged. No details about scourging. How did we find out about scourging? We have to go into extra uh, biblical, you know, historical documents and find out how they, how they were scourged. But the Bible itself didn't tell us. Same thing is true here with crucifixion. Not one of the single gospel writers even devoted a whole sentence to his crucifixion. Matthew said, and they crucified him. That's it. No details. Mark said, and when they had crucified him. John and Luke both say the same thing. They crucified him. Three words. That's it. Isn't that rather remarkable? How brief and and discreet the Gospels are? You know, nothing of any graphic detail is given to us whatsoever in order to sway the sympathy of the reader. Why is that, you think? Well, because the primary purpose of the God-inspired Gospels is not for the reader to be aroused in his sympathy or pity for Jesus Christ. I thought about how on the way to the cross, remember, the only words he spoke, he spoke to women and said, weep not for me, weep for yourselves and for your children. He doesn't want our sympathy. He doesn't want our pity. What does he want? Why were the Gospels given to us? What does he want? Our faith in his person. He wants us to love him, to trust him, to put our faith in him. And besides that reason for a lack of details about the Lord's crucifixion is that the same divine author of the four Gospels already long before had revealed the details about the Lord's crucifixion, you know, about his sufferings, and even the thoughts of his mind while he was suffering on that cross for six hours. Where do we find those details? Old Testament. Same divine author, right? He'd already given us those details in the Old Testament scriptures from a number of places, and and that's where we gain insight into the sufferings of the Lord on the cross. That's where we even gain insight, as I said, into what was going on in his mind as he was on the cross during those horrendous six hours. And we're going to be looking at a lot of those in our extended study on the crucifixion. Also, from the human perspective of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they probably saw very little reason to describe the horrific details of crucifixion to their contemporary readers. Why would that be? Right, because they already knew more about crucifixion than they ever wanted to know. They say that by the time of Christ, 30,000 people had been crucified by Rome just in Israel alone. That doesn't count, you know, all Rome's other subjected peoples. So they knew more about crucifixion than they ever wanted to know. Josephus tells us that crucifixion was the most wretched of deaths. Cicero, who was a Roman uh, statesman, called it, quote, a most cruel and terrible penalty, incapable of description by any word. There is none fit to describe it, end of quote. No Roman, Roman citizen could be crucified no matter how heinous his crime was. The only exception to that 
was if a Roman soldier, um, what did they call it, went AWOL, you know, was a traitor or something. That was the only exception. Otherwise, you were totally safe if you were a Roman citizen. And I found out the other night also that no women were ever crucified. I don't know if there was an exception ever made to that. But again, aren't you glad that God has protected women? He looked at us and he said, ah, they've gone through enough just with bearing children. (laughs) But no woman... No woman needed to fear. Can you imagine a woman having to hang there like that, naked and exposed, so they did not crucify women or children? Praise the Lord for that after we hear about how horrific it was. Um, The Jews, by the way, never used crucifixion as a means of um, the death penalty, did they? How did they, they, um, right, stoning or on occasion they would strangle somebody, but normally it was by stoning. So they were really more merciful than the Romans. Now, where did such a horrible mode of death originate from? This won't shock you. The Persians. You know who they are today? Yeah, there you go. The Iranians. (laughs) Crucifixion originated with the Iranians. They're still up to no good, aren't they? Sorry if you have Iranian blood in you. I don't blame you, but... Um, it started with the Persians. Um, by the way, the word crucifixion comes from the Latin word for cross, which is crux, C-R-U-X. Like we say, the crux of the matter it comes from, from Latin. Um, <clears throat> the ancient Persians worshipped a god called Ormazd, and they said he was the god of the earth. They believed that earth was sacred, just like, you know, a lot of people today, they worship, you know, worship Mother Earth. The, the Persians did the same thing. Therefore, they, they believed that anyone who was to be put to death for his crimes needed to not die on Earth because he would defile Earth. His body did not need to be touching the Earth. He didn't need to have his blood dripping on Earth. So they tied them to a pole and lifted them above the Earth and left them there to die so that their body did not defile the Earth. So they are the originators of this method of execution, which was then later adopted, and this was about three or four hundred years B.C., just, you know, three or four hundred years before Christ, they started this method. It was adopted by the Carthaginians, you know, those people from Moore County like me that live down near Carthage. (laughs) I do, I have a Carthaginian phone number. (laughs) And then the Greeks picked up on it for a while, but it was never really used as the primary mode of execution until the Rome, other than the Persians, until the Romans took it up. And uh, they picked it up just shortly before the time of Christ. It's, I mean, God is orchestrating history, you see. And it lasted until the time of Emperor Constantine. Do you remember him? He was the one who finally put the end to to Christian persecution in around the 300s A.D. He had a dream in which he had, he said, a conversion experience. I don't think the guy was really, truly born again. But he did convert from paganism to his form of Christianity. And uh, he stopped not only persecution, but he stopped all crucifixion. So there was a point, only a period of of time in history, you know, if you go all the way from the beginning to the end, there's only about 600 years in there where uh, 
crucifixion was the means of death. What is interesting, however, is that all the way back to the days of Moses, far before crucifixion was ever devised as a means of crucifixion, God revealed that this would be the means of death for his son. All the way back to Moses. How was that? Well, you remember when the children of Israel were in the wilderness wandering around and they got tired of manna? Can you imagine getting tired of eating manna? You know what manna must have tasted like to me? I I mean, when I read the description in the Bible, a hot and now crispy cream donut. Have you ever had one right off the line? I mean, it just like melts in your mouth. I, every time I eat one of those, I think, oh, manna. <laughs> and they got tired of Krispy Kreme hot nows, and they started grumbling and, and saying, we should never have less, left Egypt, you know. We like the, <laughs> the leeks. I almost said the geeks. <laughs> the leeks and the garlic of, of Egypt. And so what did God do? I mean, you know, he's, he's had it with these people. And so he sends fiery serpents, and they all get bitten. And some of them start dying. So they go to Moses, and they say, please, please intercede on us. We repent. We're sorry. We'll eat Krispy Kreme donuts. Um, and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And God tells Moses to build, to make a brazen serpent, Right, they're getting bitten by the serpents and dying of the fatal poison, you know, the venom. Make a brazen serpent and lift it up on a pole. Think of Christ. It's such a perfect picture of crucifixion, of how he would die. Didn't he literally become sin for us? How do you picture sin? Nothing better than a serpent, right? So brazen serpent on a pole, lift it up, and everybody who will look at that All they had to do was look at it in faith, believing it would heal them, and instantly they would be saved from dying of the venom. And that's exactly how it is today. I remember explaining that to my father. I said, Dad, all you have to do is look upon the Lord Jesus Christ, lift it up on the cross, he died for you. How simple can it be? Look at him in faith and you'll be saved from the fatal bite of the serpent, from death all they had to do. Jesus knew that that was a picture way back then of his crucifixion. He knew it early in his ministry because he told, explained it to a Pharisee named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Remember, he said, he said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. Well, anybody in that day knew that to be lifted up meant to be crucified. They all understood that. Now, there were a variety of different kinds of crosses over the years that they used, different shapes. There was what was called St. Anthony's Cross, and that formed a capital letter T. Okay, that's St. Anthony's Cross. Then there was the Greek Cross. I I grew up in a Greek Orthodox church, and my church, which was named St. Peter's and Paul, Greek Orthodox Church, I just went back this summer to look at it, the first time in 25 years, it's still there, and it's still in the same shape. The actual building of the church is in the shape of a Greek cross. A Greek cross is even. It's, you know, 
totally even, like a plus sign. That's a Greek cross. And then you have St. Andrew's cross, which I believe they called it that because they, tradition says that that's how Andrew, the Apostle Andrew, was uh, martyred. He was put on this type of cross, formed an X. And then there is the traditional type of cross, which is called the Latin, Latin cross, or the uh, crux emissa. And it is in the shape, as you can see up there, it's in the shape of a small letter T, right? It's the one that is best supported by the scripture that they used for Jesus Christ. It was the one that was most popular at the time he was crucified. Although the capital letter T, cross, might have been, but I doubt it. Because... They put a superscription above Jesus' head, and it actually tells us in Matthew 27, 37, that it was over his head that they put it, okay? Now, they could have put it on the capital T. I have a picture here that shows you that, and I'm going to see if we can make copies of some of these pictures I have. I don't know if you can even see that. They could have nailed it to the top of the letter where the capital T came together, but um, Ashuer, I mean, uh, historical archaeology thinks that Jesus was most likely crucified on the, the Latin cross. And they put the placard up above, up there, that said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Now, this might surprise some of you, but there were, there were tall crosses and there were short, shorter crosses. Um, at the time of Christ, again, they were more inclined to use the shorter crosses, which meant that Jesus' feet were only about two feet above the ground, 24 inches above the ground. This means that the heads of the Roman soldiers, take a six-foot man, their heads were about even with his waist. And they say that Jesus was on the shorter cross, that he would only be, you know, his feet about that high off the ground. Because also when they, they, um, thrust the spear through him, that, you know, they were, they were close enough to do that. They didn't climb up on the ladder. So I know we have pictures sometimes in our mind of Jesus hanging way above everybody's head. That really was not the way it was. Also, you've seen pictures where he's off on the hill far away. Nobody's around him, right? He and the other two thieves are all by themselves out there. And maybe there's a couple of Roman soldiers under them. But they were in the midst of the people. People could actually reach out and touch them. People were all around them. He could hear everything they were saying, you know, and, and he was in the midst of them. They were close by. The crowds were right there. So how did the crucifixion itself start after the drink and after the undressing? Well, the victim was forced down upon the cross, which was the cross beam, the patibulum, which was now, you know, they would put, take it off of him. Of course, Jesus, they would take it off of Simon, and they would lay it on the ground. And then the victim himself was forced by the four Roman soldiers assigned to him, um, forced down upon that cross. It would be absolutely the uh, most uncommon thing that I think they would have ever seen for a victim, especially a victim who had no narcotic drink inside of his body, to, to willingly lay himself down on that crossbeam. You know, all the men, 
unless somebody was really in la-la land, would um, struggle somewhat and give them a hard time. But we know that the Lord Jesus laid himself willingly down upon that wood. How do we know that? Well, we know it because of the type of Christ that is given to us again in Isaac, who willingly laid himself down on the altar of the wood um, in obedience to his father's will. I told you he was about 30. He was stronger than his father. His father was an old man. He did not need to get on that wood of that altar. Isaac could have run away from Abraham. He could have fought his father off. His father just asked him to do it because he said, God asked me to do it. And will, willingly, Isaac laid himself down. And he's a picture of Christ. So we know Christ did the same thing. We also know it because Christ told us in John chapter 10, I, I lay my life down for my sheep. He said, no man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. There was no struggle, even without a narcotic, from the Lord. He laid himself down on the cross and probably even stretched out his arms on that patibulum so the soldiers could um, fasten him to it. First, maybe by cords. I don't know. You know, you can read a lot. There were different ways of doing crucifixion. So I've read so many books, and I read some more last night. And I'm not sure if he was tied first with cords. They did that a lot. Um, maybe they did with him. I can't be dogmatic, but sometimes they would tie the victim's arms first with cords that would help them out before they then put the nails into the, the hands. Um, <clears throat> then, once the arms were held to the beams, perhaps by the taut cords, then a seven to nine inch long square cut and I have <clears throat> this long one this long nail right here they say is pretty authentic it's about seven inches long um, this would probably be the length that they would use for the arms it would might be a little bit longer for what they had to do to the feet but this if you want to come up and look at it is square cut iron here's the head of the nail got a little bit of a point but not as pointy as you'd want it to be um, but they would take a nail like that, and with a, a large mallet, they would hammer it through <clears throat> the center of, um, I've lost my place here, <coughs> um, not the palm, okay? You've seen pictures where it's the palms of his hands, but I know you've heard that they have, the medical research has proven that that could not be possible because the weight of the victim, even with cords, would eventually cause the nail to just, you know, the, the body weight to rip right through, up through the fingers. And so what they found is, I mean, the Romans had perfected this to an art. I, I've kind of joked about it yesterday. I'm sure they killed many in the process of learning, but they, they found a place in the, in the right here. And now you say, well, Jesus said, you know, my, the nail prints in my hands. Well, they considered right here to be part of the hand. They didn't call it the arm, they called it the hand. But there's a, a series of eight little bones there, and they found this one, they could feel for the spot where they could drive the stake through there and not break any bones. There was very little blood, actually, unless they hit an artery. <laughs> that, you know, that'd be the best way to go, wouldn't it? 
So I'm sure as they practice makes perfect, as they're practicing over the years, they probably killed a few in the learning process, but there is a space, and again, I've got pictures that will make, um, in, in this article that was in a medical journal years ago, back in 1996, where they could, where they found that little spot and drove, drove the stake right through right there without piercing. See, it's important. In order to fulfill Old Testament prophecy that not a bone of the lamb's body would be broken, and it's just amazing to me how the Romans, do you think the Romans cared if they broke the victim's bones? No, but God was making sure everything was perfect, so they were able to do this without breaking any bones. And they would drive, you know, first one hand and then the other. Can you imagine the pain? No, you can't. Excruciating. You know where the word excruciating came from? Crucifixion. If you do the etymology of the word, it's from a Latin, it's from Latin. Excruciating comes from crucifixion. Absolutely horrific. But this was just the beginning. Next, the legs would have been extended, allowing for a slight bend at the knees, actually a, a, a pretty good bend at the knees. Again, another picture, I don't know if you can see all that, but the knees would be bent, and then the Lord's feet were nailed either through the Achilles tendon of each foot, which is, you know, the back of your, there's a, there, you can actually nail a nail through that part of your foot and not break a bone. It would hurt like fire, screaming, raging pain, but it wouldn't break a bone. Or the other thing that they could do, which they did, and we don't know which one in the Lord, but they would take the right foot, put it over the left foot, and they had it perfected where, you know, the metatarsal bones on each foot, where they could put the nail between your second and third toe metatarsal bones and not break a bone. Isn't that amazing? It is so perfect that the Lord was not going to have any bones broken. But they would drive with one single nine-inch stake through his feet. And then once the victim was impaled upon the cross, it was then, you know, the patibulum was then picked up. Um, and Or if it was the entire cross, excuse me. Sometimes it was the entire cross, okay? You know, they did it on the ground. I don't know which they did with the Lord. But if it was the entire cross on the ground that they did him with, then they'd pick up the entire thing and when they dropped it into the hole, <clears throat> that sudden jarring, can you imagine, to every nerve and sinew of the body as well as the force of gravity would just bring piercing pain to its victim as the weight of his body pulled at the already torn and throbbing flesh around each of the three or four nails in his body. Awful. Now, there are historians that tell us sometimes the vertical beam of the cross, you know, the, the big one, which is called the simplex or the stipe, S-T-I-P-E, was already erected into a hole in the ground. So if that was the case, you know, it was already there, then what they would do was by means of ropes and ladders or a pulley device, they would lift the victim on just the crossbeam 
and lift him up and then affix that crossbeam um, or slide it into a slot on the simplex or the, the vertical, the tall upright piece of wood. You get what I'm saying? Sometimes they crucified the victim on the entire cross on the ground, picked the whole thing up, dropped it in a hole. Sometimes they just did his hands and then lifted him up and put him on the the vertical cross, and then nailed his feet. Remember, his feet are, the, the legionnaire who did the execution would actually have to get on his knees in order to hammer the nail into his feet, if that was the case. I don't know what was the case with the Lord, but either way, it was awful. Either way. I mean, they had to be careful, too, about how they, you know, they had to give enough bend in the knees, and they, and they had to, they had to leave the feet uh, with enough ability to, to push. They had to, they had to get all this perfect because if they didn't, the victim wouldn't be able to you know push up and breathe, and they would die too quickly. And that wasn't the purpose of crucifixion. They didn't want them to die quickly. They wanted them to, to linger and just have a horrible, horrible death struggle that sometimes could take days. By the way, when the Persians used crucifixion, as a death penalty, they did not pierce the victims. They didn't use nails. They only tied their victims to the poles and just left them there to die and rot. They didn't want, you know, they didn't want their bodies to touch the earth. <laughs> so they didn't pierce them because blood might drip on, you know, sacred earth. So they just tied them. It was the Romans who added the awful idea of also nailing the victim to the cross. And if you think about it, if they had not done this, if they had only tied the Lord Jesus to the, the cross, he would disqualify to be our Messiah. Wouldn't he? Why? why? Because pro- prophecy found in Psalm twenty two sixteen, which really was the Lord himself speaking 1,000 years before his crucifixion through his servant David said, they pierced my hands and feet. So if he had only been tied, he would have disqualified. Because the piercing of his side was not hands and feet, was it? They actually had to nail him to the cross. And how do we know that they actually did nail him to the cross? How do we know that Pontius Pilate at the last minute didn't say, don't do that to him. He's innocent. I know he's innocent. This is just all the Jews doing. Don't pierce him. Just tie him and let him die up there. How do we know that he didn't have a last minute? Right, right. Again, God is using the weakness of men for his own good purposes. We only know this, that he actually was impaled on the cross because of doubting Thomas. You all know that Thomas was not present with the other apostles when the Lord first appeared to all of them. And when Thomas was told by the others that they had seen the Lord resurrected, bodily resurrected, Thomas said what? He said, except I shall see in his hands the prints of the nails and put my fingers into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe, John 20, 25. Obviously, Thomas knew that the Lord had been nailed to the cross, didn't he? And none of the other apostles said like, oh, John was there. John would have said, oh no, you don't understand. He wasn't nailed. He was just tied up. So we know he was nailed to the tree. We also know it because when the Lord appeared to Thomas 
uh, a week later, what did he say? He said, go ahead, see for yourself. Put your finger in the, in the print of my hands. So we know indeed that he was nailed to the cross. We have evidence in God's word that Psalm 22, verse 6 was fulfilled once again in the Lord Jesus Christ, like all other messianic prophecies were. Um, well, another way thing that they added in, in most cases to the cross was a little um, pedestal that was called a cornu or a sedile. It was like a little seat that they nailed to the vertical part of the cross, the simplex, that was either under the, the uh, victim's buttocks or down under his feet. And why did they provide that little cornu, that little seat or footrest? So they could push up and breathe. At what They did not put that there for merciful reasons. Because, it, again, it prolonged the death by having that. Without it, the victims would have died of suffocation much, much sooner. But because they had that little seat, they could keep on breathing. The victim would be acutely aware, especially in Jesus' undrugged state, of two unendurable circumstances. You know, with his arms in a V position... The first thing he would be acutely aware of was that the pain in his hands was absolutely beyond bearing, causing muscle cramps that would um, knot his forearms here and his upper arms and the shoulders. The second thing was that his, the pectoral muscles on his chest, on both sides of his chest, were momentarily paralyzed, which would induce an involuntary panic in that while he could draw air into his lungs, he could not exhale. See how long you can hold air into your lungs and think about not being able to exhale that air. That's the position they were in. They were powerless to exhale. So, and, and as I mentioned, in order to be able to keep breathing, the victim had to stay in constant motion. He literally had to drag himself up and down, up and down, so as to continuously make breathing possible. And with each movement, what is his back up against? An old, wugget, wugget, rugged cross. I never know what's going to come out of my mouth. An old rugged cross. Yesterday I called the bones of the foot metatussels. Metatussels? I think I was thinking of toes. I don't know. <laughs> but with each movement, oh man, the pain, the searing pain would mount as tissue would tear off his already lacerated back. You see, crucifixion victims had already been scourged. And no one was scourged as much as the Lord Jesus, beyond human recognition. So you know his back is already bloody and organs exposed and ribs exposed. And then he's up and down, rubbing his back against that cross. The arms and the legs and the entire torso would be screaming with pain. The nerves pulled tightly. The muscles would spasm 
Some say that the crucifixion victims died of suffocation. Some say that they died of dehydration. Uh, others say they died of, of uh, hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. You know, just died of sheer exhaustion as the body eventually wore out from the unendurable pain and the unnatural suspension of organs and, and muscles. Harvey Branscombe summarized crucifixion like this. He said, few more terrible means of execution could be devised. Pain, raging thirst, burning fever, the torture of insects. Had you thought about that one? Insects, flies going in your nose, all around, buzzing around, bees. They even say it's a, sometimes birds would come and land on them and peck at the open skin. And you can't do a thing about it. There you are, fixed and rigid. You can't whisk them away. That alone would be torture for me, wouldn't it? Just that one thing. He says all of the, and the, and the uh, exposure uh, to brutal spectators. Everybody around you, looking at you naked and mocking you. And the horror of rigid fixation. There you are, you can't move. All of this continuing combined to make it a supreme humiliation and torture. End of quote. Dr. Truman Davis in his article, The Crucifixion of Jesus, A Passion of Christ from a Medical Point of View, said uh, this, he adds medical insight into the pain of crucifixion when he said that there would also be a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium uh, would slowly fill with serum and begin to compress the heart. I got another picture of that in here. I believe when we get to the death of the Lord, when he gave up his own spirit, I think his death was from a broken heart, literally. A ruptured heart. I think that this is how he died. Well, as we all know, obviously, at some point during the day, um, the Jews had requested of Pilate that the, the, the legs of the three crucifixion victims be broken in order to speed up the death process. Why is that? Well, because they wanted them to die and they could get them down and get them buried in the earth, you know, dispose of them before the high day Sabbath officially began at sundown. And how was it that the Romans would speed up the death process? Yes, instead of knocking out that little cornu, you know, that little seat, which they could have done, could have knocked that down, instead of doing that, that would have been too merciful. Instead of doing that, they added to the already horrific pain of the victim by shattering the bones of both his legs. You know, with a big, heavy mallet, wham! The tibula and fibula just shattered. Awful. Did that below the knees. That's a, a pr procedure called crucifixure. And then, of course, you know, the victim could no longer push up, could he? Uh, you know, couldn't push his feet up anymore. Had to relieve the pressure on his respiratory system, and he would suffocate to death within a matter of minutes. Of course, when the soldiers went to break the legs of the Lord Jesus, what did they discover to their amazement? He was already dead. Now, that was not typical for a man to die with only within six hours. That was not typical. 
Um, <clears throat> but uh, he gave up his soul on his own precisely at what time, Terry? Three o'clock in the afternoon. Why? Why at three? Because that's when the Passover lambs were sacrificed in the temple. He had given up his own life before it was taken from him by others. Also, very importantly, he gave up his own life before they did come with that mallet and break his bones. Why was that important that he didn't have the bones broken? Again, he had to fulfill messianic prophecy. And that's interesting. Psalm 34:20 says this, He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. How did he do that? He was dead. How did he keep his bones when he was dead? Who is he? He's God. He kept his own bones. And I, I thought, well, you know, those Romans, they could have gone, you know, got to him, wow, he looks dead, doesn't he? Well, let's make sure. Wham! They could have done that, couldn't they? Anyway, why didn't they? Because he was keeping his bones. He was keeping his own bones. He's still in control even when he's dead. And we'll talk more about that when we get to the, you know, the lesson about the actual breaking of his legs. And not, they didn't break his legs, but we'll get about into it more when we get to the breaking of the other victim's legs. Now, normally when the legs were not broken, death by crucifixion took normally anywhere from 12 to 36 hours. That was normal. They do have on record, however, um, persons that survived as long as nine days like that. I, I just, ooh. As you can imagine, it was far worse to survive longer because then gangrene and tetanus would add to the complications of the already unbelievable, excruciating agony of the whole thing. And think, too, of the fact that in warm climates, like Israel, the suffering was even more intense because the bleeding of the wounds would not only bring that added aggravation of insects and flies and, and creatures like that, uh, but the victim's exposure to the blazing sun would intensify the traumatic fever and the insufferable thirst. Furthermore, the arteries of the head and the stomach, which would be surcharged with blood, would result in a terrific throbbing headache. I, how many of you suffer from, from migraines? I mean, when you have a migraine, there's, you just, you're no good at all, are you? I have a daughter that suffers from them. I mean, she can't even get her head off the pillow uh, without vomiting. Can you just imagine? That alone would be enough. But this is just part of the whole, all of it. It's terrible, terrible. Years ago, an old preacher, while in the process of studying about the meaning of the cross to present to his congregation on Sunday morning, was so saturated with studying all, like I've been, you know, studying all about crucifixion and everything. It, it was just so much on his mind that when he went to bed Saturday night, he had a very, very vivid dream, which he shared with his congregation the next morning. In the dream, he dreamt that he was there when they crucified our Lord. He watched as the nails were driven into his hands. He saw a single long stake driven through the Lord's feet. 
and he saw the, the crown of thorns as it punctured the brow of the Lord's head. He saw the agony of all of it, and it was absolutely more than he could bear in his dream. So in his dream, he ran in furious anger at one of the Roman soldiers. And he, he grabbed him and he yanked him around in order to, to shout at him and tell him to stop. Stop doing this to my Lord. And when the soldier turned around, guess what the preacher saw? His own face. His own face. And that, you know what? That dream that he was experiencing really gives to us the truth of the whole thing. Because all of us are just as guilty as those who actually hammered the nails into the Lord. We're just as guilty because it is our sins that put him there. Actually, more correctly, I should say this. It was because of our sins that he put himself there. He did it for us, willingly. And when we learn what he was doing the whole time, they were crucifying him. It is even more amazing. What was he doing? The Greek verb tense tells us repeatedly he was praying. He was praying for them. When I think about that scene, everybody there should have been praying. You know, the, the soldiers themselves should have been praying, forgive us for doing this to this righteous man. Forgive us for doing this to this innocent man. Pilate, over in the praetorium, should have been praying, forgive me for doing this to a man I know is innocent. The chief priests and the religious rulers of Israel, shouldn't they have been praying? Most guilty of anyone. They should have been praying, God, forgive us for murdering our own Messiah, the promised seed of the woman, the one we've been waiting for for centuries, and here we're having him nailed to a cross. The two thieves on either side of him, they should have been praying, God Almighty in heaven, forgive me. I'm about to die. I don't want to spend eternity in hell. Shouldn't they have been praying? None of them. The only one that was praying was the, the one who was treated the worst of all and for no justifiable reason whatsoever because he was totally innocent. He didn't belong there. You belonged there. I belonged there. And what was it he was praying for? Was he praying, Abba, Father, it's more than I can take. I, I just... Just please send 10,000 angels. <laughs> I, I'm not going to go through with it after all. Or take away the pain, Father. What would you have been praying? I would have been praying, get me out of this merciful God. But was he praying for himself? No. He was saying, forgive them. <laughs> for they know not what they do. That's the God we serve. That's our loving Lord Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at next week. That first saying from the cross.
forgive them, for they know not what they do. So only, in your books, only read pages 11 to 14 and just do the first seven questions, okay? All right, let's pray. Father God, it is so wonderful to know that your son made the way possible through the veil into your presence where he presented himself on our behalf as our great high priest, one who was touched in all points and even beyond all points with the feelings of our infirmities. He was tempted himself, and yet he was completely without sin. And so I would ask on the behalf of every woman here, Lord, that we would now live out the remainder of our lives committed to nothing else but being living sacrifices for you, which is just our reasonable service. We want to redeem our time wisely, Lord. We know the days are evil and the time is getting short. So may we really, really focus on that which has eternal meaning. We want to be good and acceptable and pleasing in your sight. And so that is what we ask for, Lord. Use us, take us, mold us and make us and use us to bring honor to yourself. Well, we pray in the blessed, precious, wonderful name of our Savior. Amen.